You're listening to the Substandard Model. Hi Sam, back again. New week, new facts. Oh yeah. I'm being I'm being quiet this week because I am in my cousin's house. And when I say cousin, I mean my set of three cousins who are I don't know, something like three, five and seven. Ouch. Yeah. I'm gonna be talking about hiccups. Ooh. Hiccups. Hiccups. Do you know what hiccups means in Latin? Oh, do you know where it comes from? The word Latin. I mean, yeah, it comes. <laughs> what does it mean in Latin then? Uh, does it mean explosions? No, it means to catch one's breath while sobbing. Oh. Which I suppose what? is correct because you know that <laughs> when you're sobbing, <laughs> I guess it's the same thing. Yeah, that kind of that kind of crying. Give you like a loser, the loser, the little crying. bitch boy crying. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, hiccups. I was thinking about hiccups recently, and so I just did a bit of a deep dive on hiccups. Um, I hope you guys have been thinking about hiccups at least once in your life. So you'll find. I had hiccups today. Fantastic, Sam. So you're clearly part. Well, of I'm, I'm well. I'm well um, experienced with the old hiccups. Yeah. I'm a fast eater. <laughs> right. Hiccups are an insp- involuntary spasm of your diaphragm, which is your breathing muscle. Sam does this. Just, just for people who potentially don't. <laughs> the hic noise from a hiccup actually comes from a. St- uh, the strong diaphragm contraction combined with a temporary closure of your vocal cords, which is important because I'll talk about that in a second okay. or later when I'm talking about the theories behind how hiccups came to be and why we hiccup. That's essentially the main part of the fact. Why do we hiccup? I'm going to throw in a lo- a, a, one more of my intermediary uh, hiccup facts. Prolonged hiccup attacks can kill you and prolonged can be up to a month. Up to a month. Some people can just keep having hiccups for like a month. It's generally due to another problem. Um, but you can die from hiccups, which I thought was quite... But you're fun. not dying from hiccups. You're dying from the other problem, though, right? Like diaphragm cancer mm-hmm. or whatever. No, no, I think you're dying from... Hi- well, you can, you can die from hiccups. How? Isn't it just taking in oxygen quickly? No. Oh, dear. It's actually... It, well, I mean, it closes your it closes your, your windpipe. Your oh, does it? Vocal cords. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it, it temporarily closes off your lungs. While also expanding your lungs. It's, 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 yeah. Uh, so what else is it going to expand? Your chest area. And then there's other organs in that. Um, that's a little teaser. Oh, that's right. terrifying. So it's an involuntary action. I can't remember the exact name. It begins with M. It's like a myconial, myconial uh, spasm. It's a common type of spasm. It's not super interesting how it happens. It involves a reflex arc, um, and it's just triggered by the central nervous system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it might be triggered by another nerve which could be found on the stomach, which leads me into the theories behind why hiccuping happens. So quite a lot of scientists, and I can say this in one sentence, evolutionarily think that hiccuping developed for babies whilst drinking milk in mammals. There's lots of evidence for this. Uh, Basically, when babies drink milk, they will often swallow air, which means they end up with air in their stomach, and that takes up stomach space. And so they'll develop this hiccuping method, which is a way of expelling air from your stomach, allowing more room for milk. Right? Oh, that's cool. And they've seen that babies who hiccup uh, clear up, you know, 15 to 25% or more of their stomach space um, of air in, in hiccuping than they would be able to without hiccuping. Right. So it's quite a significant advantage to have hiccuping in that sense of you're drinking milk. Um, lots of evidence for this. Hiccups only occur in mammals. They don't occur in any other branch of animals, which means that it's likely to happen in a milk-drinking animal. Right? Yeah, yeah. Secondly, um, 
the the closing of the vocal cords during the hiccuping process and that is thought to be to prevent air from going into the lungs when you expand your diaphragm right right okay so it shuts off your lungs so your lungs don't expand while you're hiccuping right and if you think about when you're hiccuping you've never breathed while hiccuping right you've never gone <clears throat> you know it's not like an inhale i kind right? of thought hiccuping was inhaling just really quick just really no. quickly like <gasps> You're trying to remove, it's a spasm, which squeezes your stomach to squeeze the air out of your right. stomach. So it closes, so what it does is it spasms your diaphragm and then closes off your windpipe. Oh, so the purpose of, of the hiccup is um, not to, anything to do with air, it's just trying to squeeze your stomach. It's trying to squeeze the air out of your stomach. And they've seen that, they've got uh, the afferent limb of the reflex arc that passes through both the esophagus, the stomach, and the diaphragm can be triggered by a bubble of air from within the stomach. And that's why you get it if you eat quickly. Oh my fucking God. That's so cool. Yeah, so don't don't swallow air. There's another one, which is... I love that. I can't Sorry, that's the name just... of it. It's, it's, something, it's some word with genetics. It's like phy, P-H-Y, phy, is phytogenetics. Is that a it's word? Phytogenetics. I mean, yeah, I think so, I guess. It's plant... Phylogenetics. Oh, phylogenetics is definitely a word. Phytogenetics is plant genetics, I think. Right, phylogenetics would be what? Well, phylogenetics is just like taxonomy, basically. Yeah, okay, phylogenetics then, right. So they think hiccups is an evolutionary remnant of an early amphibian um, cousin, essentially, of mammals. Okay. This one seems a little bit dodged, right? a little. Right, because so, early uh, amphibian respiration, they say, it's. I, I've written here half-made theory, mm -hmm. right? Um, because the tadpoles will often use a hiccuping method in order to take in air, right? Because they'll have a similar to a uh, hiccup. They'll have a periodic stomach diaphragm spasm. It's not, they don't have diaphragms. So it's kind of a bit on edge of this theory, right? <laughs> okay. But they have a spasm, which sucks in air into their breathing apparatus. They use this for respiration, right? Okay. This isn't for removing air from your stomach, right? This is weird, mainly because mammals have much more complex, uh, you know, body systems. So it's unlikely that this would be the case. There's apparently links though in this, in this um, theory that it links the uh, idea of why premature infants in humans, I think spend two and a half percent of their time hiccuping. Jesus. I don't know why that's linked. They said it was linked. You can just go with that information and, and take it nowhere. Oh. Um, <laughs> okay. That's really cool. The problem with this phylogenetic theory is that it does not explain why the you know the, the windpipe closes. Yes, and it also implies, and the problem is, is this probably wouldn't last through uh, evolution unless it had a strong evolutionary trait, such as the needing to uh, squeeze air out of your stomach, um, because rapid short contraction time of hiccuping, your diaphragm's rapidly spasmed, right? Yeah has a negative or is unlikely to strengthen the ability to have a slow twitch muscle in, in your diaphragm, which is what you need for breathing. Plesiomorphic trait from amphibians is like definitely a long shot. So what they've said is that it could be both in that the phyto, phylogenetic, sorry, not plants, phylogenetic uh, theory is the, I guess, initiation of hiccuping. Mm. That's right. Very, very way back. Very okay, way back. Okay, right? sure. Right. And then they say the other is how it became more complex as the animal grew because it actually had evolutionary pressure to stay within the animal. And then it found its new niche in terms of, so I guess they're saying, yeah, okay. Isn't it weird that old amphibians used to have this weird, you know, spasm 
mechanism of res respiring. They're saying maybe we developed hiccuping by spasming, um, but we used it for a different thing because we had different needs. So what, what part of it is actually being conserved, the reflex itself? I mean, it's a completely different... The, the weird part about this theory is it's completely different animals, both in size and in you know composition oh, sure. and in habitat and in the way they I mean, work. if it's only in mammals, is it saying that, like... I mean, our last common ancestor was a long time ago. So I guess if the reflex was somehow very dormant in the primitive nervous systems of every of every vertebrate essentially and then and uh -huh. then only with mammals as it has like mutations where that reflex has become like mammals started drinking milk and then they got air and then they randomly did this weird spasm which is remnants of this old yeah it was good and it yeah. actually removed the air which meant people did better if they had that spasm trait yeah and then it started becoming more complex as more organs developed or whatnot i don't know yeah that's pretty good that's pretty cool. I'm I'm satisfied with that. All right, cool. That's my. Fact. That was an excellent fact. Fully, fully happy with your biology. Sam, you have a fact. Yeah, I do. I do have a fact. So this fact is about domestication of animals. Domestication of animals, like yeah. a horse. Uh, horses are kind of a bad example. You know, actually, no. Horses are kind of a, horses are a good example. Cats are a bad example. Horses are a good example. Dogs is a good example. And pretty much everything else, sheep, rabbits, whatever, they're all very good examples. So, Henry, can you think of some things in common that, say, a domesticated dog, a domesticated rabbit, a domesticated horse, a domesticated goldfish, whatever? Do you think, think of some things that they have in common that wild um, versions don't have? They don't just randomly kill humans. That's a good one. They serve a function for us. I'm thinking They're more morphological, physiological. Not physiological. They have soft fur. So skin do they or, have softer fur? Like, I mean, yeah, I don't know. sure. I don't know. What about uh, the... What, here's, I'm going to give they, you a couple to save you some time. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> Floppy ears, Henry. They all mostly have floppy ears. I was ears. not gonna. I was not gonna get to floppy ears. In the words of Darwin, Darwin said this in Origin of Species. He said, um, "Shit, uh, I lost the quote." But he said he did say something along the lines of, "You will not find a domesticated animal of any kind where not a f they all have floppy ears." Pretty much all domesticated animals develop floppy ears through the process of domestication. But, like, some dogs don't have floppy ears. No, some saying, dogs like, don't have floppy ears. But, uh, but, but at but, least one member of the species will. At, le at least one path of domestication or multiple paths of domestication lead to a few things. Floppy ears, in dogs, I'm going to use dogs as an example, but you can apply this to pretty much everything. Floppy ears, slightly more patterned coats, different, different plumages, not you know, right. different fur patterns, whatever. Shortened muzzles. The tail often comes up and becomes more prominent. Um, you often get reduced brain size. You often get reduced <laughs> teeth size. All these things that become domesticated, cats, rabbits, dogs, horses, sheep, goats, show similar traits, which is odd, isn't it? I mean, there's no, we're not breeding them to have floppy ears, are we? Oh, not often, at least. We breed them to become, well, initially, we bred them to become calmer. That was the one trait we selected for. But all these other traits came along with it. Now, is that a thing you can breed for? being calm yeah like we were can. just we were just like this is joe he's the more calm wolf so we're gonna let joe well, have um a baby with, with this 
you know, Verona, who's the other calm wolf. Or well, actually, this is actually quite a contentious topic. So as a side note, a lot of people think that domestication started, like, we, we kind of take credit for domesticating wolves and stuff. We say, you know, we we did selective breeding. But actually, it's much more likely that they kind of domesticated themselves. If you imagine if you're going to approach a human settlement and try and take food or try and live off some of the things the humans are doing, like take warmth from the fire or whatever, if you're if you're one of the wolves that are willing to do that, you're one of the wolves that are going to be less likely to attack people, right? I mean, the, t- the right. tamer dogs are more willing to approach humans and therefore more willing to get the benefits of, of humans. So they kind of domesticate themselves by the ones that the ones that are more wild never really go near humans. The ones that are less wild go near humans, right? So we're not okay. really doing anything. We're just feeding the wolves that come towards us. But surely at a point, at a point we've, we've intervened. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, at this point, you know, you have two hours. That didn't happen on its own. But the original process of going from wolves to sleigh dogs, the, the humans uh, are never the, the humans never go up to a wolf pack and say that one. I like that one. Floppy ears, nice personality. I want to take that one. That never happened. And the ability to smell crack cocaine from underneath a U-Haul. Exactly, exactly. That 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 was that, that one. was. I mean, it's quite cool that they can do that, isn't it? But uh, yeah. But anyway, this is all completely irrelevant to my fact, Henry. My fact is, is essentially all these traits come in something called domestication syndrome that happens when you start domesticating animals. And it's really because what you're selecting for is not just the personality or the trait. It's something quite fundamental about the development of the animal. And with that come all these side effect traits. Oh, so you're ending up with the floppy ears, even though you're aiming for something else. Yes, and that is called neural crest cells. During the development of all vertebrates, you have, and b- b- essentially it starts as you have the endoderm, <laughs> the mesoderm, and the ectoderm, which are three layers of very undifferentiated cells. Uh, they all do different things. The mesoderm becomes like your skeleton and your muscles, but the ectoderm, which is what we're focusing on, the ectoderm becomes skin, and it becomes the nervous system, essentially, the brain and the nervous system. That's what the ectoderm is. And in the center of the mesoderm, which is in the middle of these three layers, in the middle of the embryo, you have the notochord. And step one, the notochord secretes transcription factors, these chemicals, which start these huge cascades of, of gene transcription and stuff. They secrete these up into the ectoderm. So the top layer now has all these chemicals in it. And that, that develops into something called the neural plate. Now, the way the neural plate actually starts its development is quite cool it turns from what is essentially a plate to what is essentially a tube right so it just sort of folds in attaches at the top and you end up with a tube and once this tube has sort of formed these crest cells start emerging from the top of the tube and they migrate at all these different parts of the body so all these cells because at this point they're very unspecialized they're about to specialize into all these different things things they turn into melanocytes they turn into uh, brain cells they turn into right. bone cells um and most importantly for us they turn into cells in your adrenal medulla in the kidneys in the adrenal glands so the key thing is these cells go into the adrenal medulla and allow for the production of adrenaline in later life and adrenaline is something that you produce when you're stressed when you're aggressive when you're essentially not approaching the human settlement and you're being all angry. So the animals that produce less adrenaline and therefore have less neural crest cells that make the adrenaline secreting cells, these animals are the ones that are being selected for. So you're looking for animals that secrete less adrenaline, therefore have less of an adrenal medulla, and therefore when they were developing had less crest cells. 
So you're essentially trying to get the animals that had less crest cells. Now they have less crest cells, but that also means they have less crest cells that went to form bone. They had less crest cells that went to form parts of the brain. They had less crest cells that went to form cartilage. And these can all be explained. You know, you're, you're forming less cartilage. You have floppy ears. You form less cartilage. The cartilage shortens. What does shortened cartilage do? It means the tail bends up because there's less cartilage on the top layer. It's been shortened, so it bends upwards. That's what you have to see in dogs. Uh, less bone cells, less osteocytes, shortened muzzle, different skull shape. Have you seen the skulls of things like pugs? Horrible. They look like praying mantises. That's because they don't uh, have, they have undeveloped crest cells. Undeveloped melanocytes. What are they? They create skin pigmentation. So you get blotches, you get ginger dogs, you get, you know, golden retrievers, whatever. You have underdeveloped melanocytes. So because you're selecting for this one trait far downstream of the animal's development, the, the fastest way of achieving that, evolutionarily speaking, means that you have reduced production of these crest cells during the embryonic stage. Is there a set of instructions for where these uh, cells go? Because there surely must be percentages of where these 5% go to ears or whatnot, and that changes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to embryology and, and development, all of it is gene regulatory networks. And a gene regulatory network is essentially uh, you produce a protein, that protein goes somewhere else in your genome and turns on another gene, which produces a protein that goes somewhere else and turns on two more genes, which all produce things that turn on other genes and you get a cycle. And when the cycles are in a certain pattern, you're telling right. certain cells to go to certain places. The neural crest cells, they happen really early on. This is just after gastrulation, which is when you eventually go from one layer of cells to multiple layers of cells in the embryo. Just after the stage, so you're not even really an animal, you're not even a recognizable animal yet, and you're already producing these crest cells. So they'll migrate, they migrate to lots of different parts of the body, and honestly, it's not even through the percentages, because once they get to certain places, they themselves multiply and differentiate, so it's kind of hard to say what percentage of the earlier cells go to oh, right, places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're constantly being renewed and made again. Is it a gradual change? Like, would the first, would the first well-mannered dog have slightly floppy ears, but still pretty strong cartilage throughout? Well, and then over time they become more and more floppy until they cover their eyes. That's actually a really interesting point because people used to assume yes, it was a gradual change. But to be honest, it's quite likely that if you have ra- rapid periods of of high selection. So, for example, there was one experiment which was performed just to sort of test this idea of domestication syndrome, where these foxes were being domesticated extremely quickly by, I think it was in Russia, in in these Russian scientists. And they were trying to see how quickly they could make this essentially completely wild animal resemble a sort of domesticated dog. And if they could get any signs of domestication from it, and I think it was 50 generations or, or less than that. And remarkably, what they actually got from this essentially wild fox was really a a puppy by the end of it you had these large eyes floppy ears brown coat upright tail nothing even resembling the fox that you had only 50 generations ago so you can speed up this process essentially as you want by just controlling what the selection is like but also there's another cool thing henry there's another cool thing so um these essentially these domesticated dogs that have been released i think in moscow and they're just they're just stray dogs you know most cities in the world have stray dogs they're, they're just, they're just mm. what used to be puppies now roaming around the subway systems of Moscow being all hard and scary. And you, there's been these very dramatic re- changes in the appearance of these dogs. And they've essentially really? reverted back to looking like wolves. So if you look, look, look at like images of Russian subway dogs... Russian subway is that because they're dogs, breeding by themselves and the traits that they need? Well, it's because 
these dogs, these stray dogs, their contact with humans is actually negative. They'll often be taken to like be put down because of infection or whatever. Like these stray dogs, they want to stay as far away from people oh. as possible. So they're sort of unselecting. When they make contact, they get killed. Yeah, they're basically they're unselecting for they want suddenly they want more crest cells because then they stay away from people because they produce loads of adrenaline. And suddenly they've got darker coats, they've got upright ears, they're larger, they've got longer muzzles. They, everything's been sort of changed back. And this is this has not been with any human intervention whatsoever. There's a pathway you can walk down to become domesticated, and you can walk back up that pathway within a few generations. Uh, so if we all died out, then all the animals are just going to go and yeah. get on with their stuff. Yeah, pretty much. That's... So we have to maintain pugs. Yeah, well, I mean, we will. People like pugs for some godforsaken reason, but yeah, we, we kind of have to maintain pugs yeah. uh, for now. Isn't it so cute how he's suffocating because the windpipe <laughs> is so squashed. But if, if I'm honest, I mean, you see these signs that are like, don't take your dog out on a hot day. If it's a golden retriever, they could they could be in danger at 20 degrees. If it's a pug, they're always in danger. They will die. <laughs> they will just get heat stroke and melt on the road. <laughs> Honestly, if we left pugs alone right now, they would die within 20 years. No pug is surviving anything remotely wild right right, that's enough pug slander is that everything you wanted to say about domestication i think so yeah oh no one one other thing that i should have mentioned earlier well not only are we selecting for less crest cells but there are some other traits that uh with that are not entirely explained and that's to do with selecting for more juvenile features so dogs often not only they're not only um you know floppy ears or whatever they often have big eyes they have larger paws larger head size relative to their body that's because we're mostly selecting for cute things but also we're selecting for animals for traits that are expressed at the juvenile stage because that's the most impressionable. Okay, so we, do we limit their pubescent stage? Basically, yeah, we want dogs to stay puppies for as long as possible because puppies are easier to approach than adult dogs. So they've yeah. been, you know, the, the basically it's been the puppies that have been approaching us for food all these years and they domesticated themselves to maintain juvenile traits like large eyes, which we find cute, which is so that's win-win. You know, we we want puppies and puppies want us. Could you domesticate humans? This is a really risky oh, okay. line of conversation. Right. I don't, okay, yeah, this is, ex- this is actually very convenient because I had a little thing on this. There, there yeah. are some diseases, that, and it's not, this is, obviously this isn't human domestication or anything resembling it, but it's a similar physiological idea, which is like, you know, it's some kind of parallel. There are diseases, right, in people, which has been seen, where you get abnormalities in neural crest development. They're called neurochristopathies, and there's a bunch of these that have been described. Some, like, for example, frontonasal dysplasia, Wardenburg-Shaw syndrome, DeGeorge syndrome. There's, lo- there's loads of them, essentially. And there's one of them which I can't remember what it's called. It's called Moat-Wilson syndrome, right? Moat-Wilson syndrome is essentially a, a neurochristopathy. It means you produce less crest cells at an early part of your development. And it shows a few, a few characteristics. For example, you tend to have a slightly more, like, a slightly different bone structure. You often have, like, you know, delayed development and stuff like that. But one of the key things that have been noticed about people who suffer from this condition, they're excessively friendly and like really nice that's nice that's really nice they're generally very you know they, they can lead pretty normal lives and they're completely fine but they're also quite happy imagine if like an alien race came and found us that would probably be what happened if they selected like that that's that's the best way of doing an analogy of it 
like if aliens came down, they only chose the people who were most willing to approach the aliens because then they had cool tech, which meant they were more likely to survive or whatever. Then you get people who were like dogs. Oh God. And then we'd end up with pug people who were just, Oh my God. Pug people is not cool. They'd be like sort of like sort of lemur, like horrible Loris squashed head gremlins. They'd be gremlins. Little gremlin people. <laughs> That's not what we want. That's not a version of, of Wally that I, I should love to see. I shouldn't laugh. No. All right. Thank you, Sam. You're welcome. That, I'm sorry that took quite a while. Hi, Sam. I've got some. I've got a fact for you today. Good. I'm talking about a thing called cloud seeding. Have you heard of this? No cloud. Okay, right. I've got a few guesses of what it might be. I've got okay. two guesses. Right. So guess number one. It's how different one cloud forms lots of different clouds. And I'm, okay. I'm guessing that's like one cloud breaks up and the small bits of clouds allow for the formation of clouds from the bits of clouds. Okay. Guess number one. Guess number two, plants that disperse their seeds via clouds and then via rain. Okay. They're my two guesses. If it's either of Would those, you believe that both of your guesses were stone dead wrong? I would, I would right. embrace that. Cloud seeding yeah. is actually where we make clouds uh, rain. We make them have a cloud baby known as rain or snow. Um, so it's a way of us encouraging precipitation, which is particularly useful in countries where you don't get a lot of precipitation, A. And B, it can be for drought periods for farmers. How do we do this? Well, there's three sort of ways we can do this. We can do it via plane. We can do it via a rocket. Or we can do it via a ground generator. And essentially what we do is we fly up in a plane or a rocket um, and we explode some substances into the cloud that force the, pl- the cloud to start raining so that you can get some precipitation on your soil if you're in a droughty period. It's used quite a lot in America, a surprising amount. So you'll have farmers who will have planes which are able to cloud seed just on their farm. Oh my God. Wait, wait, what are they putting in the clouds? Right. Great question, Sam. Um, so there's lots of different things. There's three different methods that I saw. But the main one was silver or potassium iodide. So they would squirt that into the okay. air, right? And that's because the crystal structure of silver or potassium iodide is very similar to that of ice. And so what they do is oh. they induce freezing nucleation sites into the air. Because oh. that's, how, that's how precipitation works, is that ice crystals clump together, falling a big enough ball of ice that it falls out of the air, no longer is buoyant. So okay. what they do is you put bits of potassium or silver iodide into the air, um, and the ice crystals latch onto it. They hit it with a certain amount of speed and energy. Water molecule attaches, starts forming ice around the outside of this particle, mm-hmm. and then it forms enough ice, and that ice sticks onto more ice, and that sticks onto more ice, and, that sticks, and then you've got a clump of this icy water ball that's now heavy enough that it falls out of the cloud towards the ground. Wouldn't that just work with snow and ice? So how do you get that to make rain, though? Because there's not like a rain lattice. I mean, there is. Because the clump falls and then it melts as it falls. Oh, so all rain starts as snow or ice and then it melts. Thing is, what is it in the cloud? Because the clouds are multiple ice crystals, right? I thought a cloud was steam, but I could be wrong. I thought it was small ice crystals in the air. You thought a cloud was just made of ice? That's, I mean, that's quite cool. That's true. It's quite possible. I don't know. I'd look at a cloud and I think steam. What is cloud made of? Water drops or ice crystals floating in the sky? There we go. Oh, there you go. 
So water droplets or ice crystals just sort of floating there. So I suppose I'm justified in saying form ice nucleation sites where the ice latches onto or the ice crystals in the cloud. Yeah, you are. Form into bigger balls, which can then precipitate out and fall through the air. Okay, so the the way you make clouds precipitate is you rely on the ice that's in the clouds and then you, you form big droplets of ice until they fall down and then those melt before they hit the ground. Yes, or you could have it snow. Or mm-hmm. maybe potentially it works with, because I reckon it's it's not going to just be ice crystals in the cloud. It's going to be a mixture, isn't it? Well, it's not going to like, if you're in sub-Saharan Africa trying to get some, you know, end the drought, it's not going to snow, is it? No, it's so gonna... it's going to melt on the way down. Okay, fair yeah. enough. I'll leave it at that. The, the planes fly up. They contain uh, silver or potassium iodide flares, which are then ignited as the plane flies through a cloud and the flares burn mm-hmm. off the potassium or silver iodide, which disperses into the air. There are some other crazy ways that they do it. Mm -hmm. So scientists have experimented with infrared pulses. Yeah. That encourage sulfur dioxide and uh, nitrogen dioxide to act as nucleation seeds is what they call it. Nucleation seeds. What? Don't ask me. Don't ask me. I don't. I'm asking you. How do they do that? I'm asking you. How does infrared radiation cause nitrogen gas to make a nucleation site for ice? Henry, I'm about to cry, you, can't just, you can't just drop that in my brain and then just expect me to I was accept. hoping that you could just gloss over it because I was going to go on to another one, which is even worse. The United, no, United Arab so Emirates cool. has decided to use EMP impulses, these static shock <laughs> those drops to collect together. It's like rinsing out a cloud. Oh. They just shoot stuff in clouds and it sort of squirts water everywhere. It just falls out of the sky. Oh, yeah, spectroscopy. That's really cool. I mean, thing is, I understand kind of how that works because it's just basically charging all the water particles. That feels like it was sort of ruin at all electronics within a nearby radius. Okay. But, right. But An sure. electronic mechanism was tested in 2010 when infrared laser pulses were directed into the air above Berlin by researchers from the University of Geneva. The experimenters posited that the pulses would encourage atmospheric sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide to form <laughs> particles as they would. Okay. Uh, oh. Looking over those those pair of sentences, that sounds a lot like it didn't work. Yeah, because <laughs> they say the experiment is positive that this would happen. They tried this. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. They observed this pattern over nine hundred laser flashes, providing they say a clear proof of the pulsed lasers cloud seeding capability that cannot be established for traditional seeding techniques. Okay, so there we go. it worked. The researchers needed to establish the physics behind the effect in order to know how to optimize the laser's wavelength, pulse duration, and other parameters. They are certain that the ions in the laser-induced plasma... Sheesh. There's a plasma now <laughs> in the cloud. Contribute to condensation. But they also believe that the condensation might occur on molecules of sulfuric acid and nitric acid, which are formed when electrons from the plasma generate the OH radical that then oxidizes sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide. Uh, no, sulfur dioxide okay. and nitrogen. Wait, okay. Uh, no, I can so do that. I what happens? That. IR radio, IR wave, boom, into the cloud. Cloud produces OH radicals. OH radicals then react with the nitrogen in the air and the sulfur dioxide in the air, producing sulfuric and nitric acid momentarily in the air. These then form condensation points or nucleation sites like we talked earlier for the ice and the water to clump together on before they fall out of the cloud. Mm-hmm. Oh, fuck. Experimental. That's really cool. That's really cool. Now, so you can laser clouds into rain. <laughs> yeah. And now, 
I'm going to try the untried UAE EBMP cloud seeding. <laughs> oh, China has been suffering from water shortage for a long time. Weather modification and rainfall enhancement via cloud seeding has been proved to be effective to alleviate the problem. Fantastic. Right. <sighs> Current cloud seeding methods rely on so that sometimes instead of um, silver iodide or potassium iodide, they also use carbon uh, dry ice, solid carbon dioxide. I haven't okay. I haven't seen hydroscopic salts, but we're just gonna. Oh, by the way, it says, it says here that cloud seeding might have negative impacts on the environment. Really widely debated. They found that silver iodide has relatively no effect on on wildlife. So okay. I mean, creating acid rain from the old hydrogen. No, that's that's the laser. <laughs> that's the giant sky laser, Sam. No you shoot the sky. <laughs> you shoot the sky with a laser, and then it rains acid. Creates plasma in the cloud. <laughs> right, okay. Can I not just leave it at they've done stuff to the sky that causes rain to clump together? Yeah, sure. They they shot. <laughs> shot electricity at the sky yeah. and then it rained. That's basically it. It's they shot it up at the sky, up. then it rained, oh! and the eco-ness is still very debated. There are pictures of like um in Dubai flooded streets. Of of all these like flooded streets from the seeds that you, they, you the just punch a cloud and it pees on you. <laughs> with the program oh my god, the UAA re- the UAE research program for rain enhancement science. Mm. That's so cool. That's so deeply cool. Yeah, and you didn't know. I I like your fact a lot. Wait, 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 wait. The increased concentration of particulate matter or micropollutants increased risk for respiratory illness. When when? That's the fake news. (laughs) We made clouds fire down cancer (laughs) with lasers. This is the part. Yeah, in in thirty years' time, silver (laughs) iodide is going to be the new CFC. (laughs) Yeah, we're all going to be like wheezing and coughing and like sm- getting lung cancer in our 50s let's put lead in fill the clouds <laughs> with silver iodide and acid silver being a heavy metal and iodide god. being a heavy halogen <laughs> god got angry and he made the clouds rain down cancer plagues upon us right that's it essentially that was a brilliant fact that was a real roller coaster Spoiler alert, it is biology again. Oh. <laughs> right, so this how interesting this is going to be essentially entirely depends on how familiar you are with marsupials. How familiar are you with marsupials? You mean multiples? <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. When we were in year seven, one of the first... We're 11 years old for people who are not from the UK. First intellectual debates that we ever had potentially was on this correct pronunciation of marsupial. And Henry was adamant that it was marsupial, and I, the the the, the young actress that I was, the giga chat that I was, was rather sure that it was in fact marsupial. And well, I, I we really actually got members of the Siri. public involved. We did, and we asked Siri um, if it was marsupial or marsupial, and the moment she said marsupial, ooh, yeah, probably shouldn't have been get, having our phone out so much in public. I get shut. No, I think that was was that the day we got mugged. <laughs> no. <laughs> But that wasn't. It was a similar incident. situation. Some. I think, it, I we think were, it was a question we were asking, and then a group of guys stopped us and asked. Our we were friends. asking about why a gestion and excretion were different. Ah. 
<laughs> you are asking Siri what, why pooing doesn't count an excretion. And that turned into a dramatic life experience. We, we had our theories, but we weren't sure. And then someone came behind us. Was it still on your phone when the guy was asking for it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was on my phone and he came behind it and slapped it out of my hand. And then it landed on the girl path and it cracked. And then that wasn't the way I would have gone about and then it. We, no, I really would. I really wouldn't have thought much if they'd just said, "Can I have your phone, please?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure, dude." <laughs> you probably but, would. By the way, like, well, do you know why ingestion? Ingestion and excretion, because there's lots of different types of excretion. And ingestion yeah. is just pooping, right? Well, it's, a, it's no ingestion is removal of waste. Mm, well, Inge- Ooh, shoot. Do you not okay. know? We- excretion sweat. He doesn't know. Excretion is breathing out. You know, you breathe out your farts when you keep them in. If you hold in your farts for an extensive period of time, it gets reabsorbed by your intestine, and then it can later be passed out through your blood and your lungs, which means you can breathe well, out your fart matter. Mm, it's really so cool. So don't actually. hold them in. Um, so if you don't fart, it yeah, means if you hold it in, it gets reabsorbed. Farts. Like you push it back up your colon. <laughs> That's useful because a lot of people like pretend they don't fart, and then it makes them really cool and like you know. High society, all sophisticated <laughs> and farts. Oh, I don't fart. Ooh, I, I never. I'm like, you yeah, just well, hold it farts. Why? I fart constantly. I'm always <laughs> farting. No, no, all the time. Like at least once every two hours, I will. Did your fart. girlfriend's gonna listen to this? Yeah, she, yeah. I'm keeping that in. That's not good. No, no. She, also, no, she isn't. Let's just start that off with that. Uh, but also, <laughs> if, she, if she does, I'm gonna put it in the first um, minute. This is um, the first fact. I'm sure she farts as well. I'm fine with her. You know, it's, I'd rather that than if she breathed it out. There you go. Mm. Nice. You consider that nice. Good. Anyway, the the difference that you're what you're what you're looking for, Henry, is that uh, excretion is removal of endogenously produced waste. Oh yes, the word I was so, looking for was endogenously. So, so stuff that, like, for example, if you're if you're producing, you produce you produce urea. You don't eat urea and then remove urea. You you make urea through one of the you know through a certain process in your body, and then you, you uh, produce that and you get rid of that. That's because you're excreting it. Lots of like for like bilirubin. That's uh, that's a compound that you excrete as well. Loads of things you excrete, like salts you've produced, then you excrete those things that you make in your body that are waste products. Does it count as making a salt if it just dissolves and then passes around a bit and then gets re-precipitated? I'm not sure what what the uh, verdict on that is. I don't think so. I think the things you excrete and sweat are are different. But You excrete a lot of amino acids. Ingestion is the stuff that just goes straight through, right? Ingestion is stuff that wasn't touched by your body at all. It just goes straight through. You you never, you didn't make that, 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 that corn husk. You know, you didn't you didn't absorb it and then remake it. It just, just went straight through. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's you like did. The equivalent we just haven't of, worked it out yet. It's the equivalent of like you know, like like it, essentially your intestines should be considered outside of your body. And every time you poo, it's just like if you jump, if you if you if you you know you jumped over something. It's basically the same thing. Like not enough. There's no significance of your intestinal tract. You you jump over something, but you inhale the salts as you go. I know you think about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right, it's five minutes, Sam. Can't wait to edit. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so um, well, I mean, no, it's quite a short fact, so I'm right. quite glad we took that. Marsupials and marsupials. We were it also we were vaguely 11. connects to what I'm going towards. The marsupials and marsupials. How, do, what, what do you know about um, the birthing Kangaroos. process? Kangaroos. The birthing Kangaroos. process. Okay, so they yes. give birth, then their baby climbs up like a disgusting little yes. slimy thing it is into their tummy in a pouch. 
uh-huh. then it lives there for a while longer. And it, it like yes. it gets fully hairy in there. Like it becomes a full on rodent sized no, animal. Exactly, there. exactly. Fully well, alive okay, animal climbs out uh-huh. and in, whatnot, can get fed in there, I think, somehow. Yeah, no, they have they have nipples in there. They have nipples in there. Cool. Dude, that's such a bro yeah. chamber, isn't it? Just you and your nipples. You and your, you your mum's nipples. Central heat. Me and me and me and my mum's nipples. <laughs> Gonna write a book. Um I, wanna, <laughs> I call it my bro chamber. Right. Is that is that it to marsupials? They've got long legs. No, if, no. If you yeah, if you well, drive into a kangaroo, you'll probably die. So will it? Because they'll yeah, but it will kick you while it gets hit, and you'll die. Kangaroos are fucking stupid, man. Honestly, but they're, they're so, so jacked. Have you seen how jacked they are? No. Have you not seen the the? Oh, right. I'm showing you this. A jacked kangaroo. A jacked kangaroo. How, how, what do you mean by that? Like, I know they can kick pretty hard. But you don't want to get on the wrong side. Whoa! That, okay, that's not real. That is not... These are not real pictures. Oh, wait. Actually, that one might be. That one might be. Okay, that one isn't. That one might... That one's not real. That one... They're all yeah, real, Travis. I think they're all real. What do they're I not all real. That... They're so not all real. They're so not... These can't be real. There's zero... There's no way these are real. 200 pound ripped kangaroo crushes metal. CNN. It's the exact kind of thing that the internet would l- just love to Photoshop. No, but like, that's real, right? It's when they stand up, I think, because you don't realize how big their biceps are. That looks Why would they have big biceps? Why would they have big biceps? I'm looking up, is it? Oh, no. They, after, oh, God, maybe it is real. The, the New York Post has done an article about how Australia has buff kangaroos. Reddit user shocked by Jack Kangaroo with huge muscles. <laughs> they look so imperious in all the images. They're like, look at them. Look they look, they look like models. They're actually, they look like, they look like Chris Hemsworth. Sort of horse. The new actor to play Wolverine is actually a kangaroo. God, he's formidable. God, he's so sexy. In 2019, a rogue red kangaroo went on a rampage through a village in Queensland. Beating up three people, including a seventy-two-year-old woman. I like how it didn't, it did not kill anyone; it just beat people. Up. Just, beat, just beat the shit out of them. <laughs> <laughs> just glassed them for no reason. That's a sigma male move. <laughs> Arrived in Queensland, beat up seventy-two-year-old lady. Refused to explain. <laughs> leave. <laughs> Have a small baby emerge from your vagina and climb into a pouch in your chest. <laughs> Refuse to explain. Refuse to explain. <laughs> yeah, basically. So the, these babies come out of the come out of the birthing canal, and they're about the size of a jelly bean. You can't really see them. They're tiny and pink. The size of a jelly bean. Literally the size of a jelly bean. Only a couple centimeters then, large. Wait, so the and they climb. Doesn't really have. It doesn't do uterus stuff, then, does it? No, no, no. It's not developed at all. It's an embryo. It's literally an embryo, and then it climbs out. That's insane. And it goes all the way up, and then climbs into the pouch. And then develops and then comes back out of the pouch. Why? Why do they do this, Henry? Doesn't this seem like the worst idea ever? If you're, like, if what if you're you the flicked most, it off by accident? Literally the most. No, no often, if, if during this process, the kangaroo is startled, they will grab their baby and throw it off their chest and run away. They will literally grab the jelly bean, like flick it off them. Like if they notice it does make the abortion that their process baby a lot is climbing up to their stomach, they'll literally flick it off. There are videos of them like kicking off their babe jelly bean babies, <laughs> dude. Because I just noticed them. So like, would you find in a field <laughs> just random jelly bean babies in the grass? You wouldn't notice them. And they're really small, are they? They're literally the size of like 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 a few peppercorns. Wow! Like they're tiny. 
not middle that small, like okay. like a sort of like a little finger, about half the size of your little finger. All right? Why do they maybe. do this? So what? What? Yeah, doesn't it seem like that's the time when you're most vulnerable, and you decide that's the time when you want to essentially scale a mountain equivalent, and then climbing into another womb, which is just as good as your previous womb. The reason they do this is because when they're incubating their baby in their pouch, they can actually get pregnant, and they have a sort of cue. They can have multiple babies. They have multiple babies. So essentially, they're gestating one large joey in their pouch, and maybe he's a few months down the line. At the same time, they have a little zygote ready to go. Once the second the joey leaves, they can essentially just keep cycling. That actually seems like a better idea now, doesn't it? It does. So like, it, it doesn't really matter. If you flick off your fucking jelly bean and he lands and dies in the grass, it's fine. You've got another one ready to go. just comes right back well, out. How long does it gestate before it starts to climb? Like from, uh, from, from I think uh, 28 days, inception. I think about a month. A month, yeah. Wow. I think so. I, th- I think it's, it's variable. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure, but it's around that. And that's not even the end of my fact. Right, so my fact is basically is about, I mean, that's kind of the fact, but there's another cool part of the fact. So kangaroos have their pouches on their front. Uh, a bunch of other, like, for example, Tasmanian devils have their pouches on their back. On their back? Uh, on their back, yeah. Koalas have them just sort of, like, in them, like, just like a slit. It's just, like, sort of there. And it's kind of, they're kind of on their front. It's really weird. And, like, a bunch of other mosquitoes. Like, there are mosquitoes everywhere. Why don't they the just world. have an internal pouch? Though? Sorry, not, not everywhere, right? Could they not just, just have... Australia and South America. Could they not just have two uteruses where they have, like, a tube between them? Uh, like, when they're ready, they can squirt from their first uterus, the little embryo jelly bean. They can squeeze mm. it along via peristalsis into the second uterus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I mean, that that's probably a better solution. And kangaroos kind of are the weirdest ones. When, like, most mosquitoes don't require their babies to climb like a meter of fur using just their arms after like literally a month of developing. They're blind and they're like slimy pink blind jelly beans climbing up a vertical furry mother. Who, a if vertical they get noticed, six pack. Like if the mother notices them, they'll literally get kicked off. Get decked. Like <laughs> yeah, climbing, like, like getting their fingers in the creases of the six pack. Just sort of scrambling their way up like th- that that's very extreme crush it like between most her things, like in south america you have a lot of marsupials they don't tend to go that extreme you know they just sort of have like a pouch very near the the, the, the vagina or whatever it's very it's pretty reasonable but most most of them have cloacas actually most marsupials uh, especially most male marsupials most male marsupials have cloacas all so do but they one do they there must have been so basically cloaca is mm-hmm. where the vagina meets with the, the there's, there's one hole right yeah there's one, hole. there's one a lot of mammals have them well mammals have we have humans have three holes if you're a woman right where's the third hole sam we're not doing this now i'm gonna be honest is you counting mouth no i'm counting um Oh, I see. Oh, vagina, right. Anus. Sure, 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 right. sure, 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 sure. And they're all combined, I'm assuming, in a cloaca. Or is it? Yeah. Right? Okay, so you've got not, this little jelly bean coming out of one side of the cloaca, and then you've got poo coming out the other side. It seems like there's room for a traffic jam there. Well, it's the males that tend to have cloacas. Oh. <laughs> is that for the exact reason of pooing out your babies by accident? No, I don't think so. I'm not. I think it, it's very variable depending on depending on families, but... The delphids, which is the group of marsup- South American marsupials, the males will pretty much all have cloacas, and the females will usually be like other marsupials. Right. But there are there's only one. There's actually some individuals 
some species, the males also have pouches, which is very weird. There are only two species where the male marsupial has pouches. And can the jelly bean go from the woman to the man? No. The pouch, there's only, so I'm just going to, so the the thylacine is one of them. And we don't really know why the thylacine had it because they're all dead now. But the other one is called the water opossum. Right. So the the water opossum is the only extant marsupial where the male has a pouch. And it's also the only one where the male doesn't have a cloaca. Now, these two things are related. So because the male doesn't have a cloaca essentially means that they have, well, they have a, two holes. They have a scrotum. <laughs> that didn't you didn't see that coming. Most marsupials don't really have like a big dangly scrotum. Uh. These these are uh, water opossums. Oh, yeah. Big dangly scrotum, a very for a marsupial human looking penis. Wow. Or as in they don't have a cloaca. Cool. They essentially have a regular penis. Nice. Right? Mind blown. And that explains, Henry, that's actually linked to the reason why they have a pouch. So what they do is when they go into the water, don't. they put their their cock and balls in their pouch don't. and don't they swim it. around. So that they don't get tangled on vegetation or or stuff like that. They just How big of... is your cock and balls? <laughs> They've got speedos. Mine, mine, mine. They've got speedos. <laughs> They're European marsupials. <laughs> they do have speedos. <laughs> they have inbuilt speedos. Basically, whilst that is cool, it's also hilarious. Yeah, the, yeah, the only reason they have a pouch is so they can put their genitals in it when they go swimming. <laughs> And they're the only one that has a pouch. Like <laughs> all the others, the males just don't have pouches. They just have cloacas. But, so be, these are water possums. Are like, nah, I'm gonna have a full cock and balls, and I'm gonna also evolve a pouch. Um, I'm gonna have a pouch though, so it's fine. <laughs> I have my requirements. That's quite yeah. weird. I don't know. That's essentially the end of the fact. Well on nature. Marsupials are really weird. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, nature is willing to overcome some serious obstacles in order to maintain genitals. <laughs> you heard it here first, guys. You heard it here first. I mean, would you want a cloaca? Be honest. No. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> would you rather have evolved a pouch than have a cloaca? I would like a, 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 a genital pouch. Henry would like a genital pouch. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we're going to end. Hi, Sam. Hi, Henry. I am. I understand this one. This one's a physics one. Yeah, it's kind of an astrophysics one, um, which I thought you quite like because I do. I do. You've done a biology one today, so I think it's only fair. If I if I extend the favor, so Henry, every year, roughly ten meteorites land on each square meter of the Earth's surface. What do you think nah, about that? What do you think about each that? square meter? Yeah, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Well, are we just never in the right place at the right time, so it, we just miss it every time. No, on what each this is square, is they're going to land on each square meter, but like a hundred kilometers up, and it'll burn up in the atmosphere. No, no, they land on each square meter of the Earth's they surface. They make contact with the Earth's surface. The surface. The What's the technical name? Lithosphere. No, or something. no, that's not what this is. Ten. You're not listening, Henry. Ten meteorites land on each square meter of the Earth's crust of the Earth's surface. Right, okay? and they they squish into the rock. No, am I correct? Well, in kind that? kind of, but no more than anything else. That you right. Okay. On the Earth. Are they like specks of dust at this point? Yes. 
Space Dust. Oh, fuck's sake. Are you this aware is, of this Space This is an average. This is an average, right? It's like, no, it's it's like kind of pretty millions weird. of meteorites are coming and hitting the planet every day, but they're burning up in the atmosphere. And so just on average, if you count up all of those meteorites that hit the Earth every year and you count up the total land area of the Earth and then you average everything, it comes out to 10. No, it's not that. It's on the average square meter of the Earth, you get about 10 particles of tiny space dust landing on it. I mean, it's cool. Space dust. And space dust is cool for a lot of reasons, Henry. Space dust, also known as micrometeorites, right? Damn. They is- this, this isn't related to, like, you're made of space dust because you were no. all your atoms. No, that shit, that shit won't fly here, okay? This is literal <laughs> space dust. This is dust by every stretch of the imagination. Like, there's probably some of this in your house right now. That's probably a lot of this in your house. Wait. Almost so certainly. Is, could dust be meteorites? Oh, yeah. Well, no, okay. So the reason that people only just... Dis- people discovered this in the 1870s. When, oh, well, the, okay. when the HMS Cha- the HMS Challenger dredged up some from the Pacific Ocean, and everyone was like, "Well, why is there so much dust here? That's really weird." You know, dust is just like dead skin, isn't it? And mites <laughs> and the mites and shit. So then they looked at this dust and they realized, "Oh, these are all tiny, tiny meteors that have fallen from space." What about the rest of this dust? And there's actually quite a lot of these tiny micrometeorites on roofs of houses and cities and streets you just don't see them because they kind of get overwhelmed by that's the organic dust fact. that's a great fact so much of these around right and there's the, the, there's a lot of scientists who dedicate their life to studying these micrometeorites so a lot of the time a lot of them make their way to antarctica just because of the wind that that's, that's the wind currents in the earth essentially just make about 10 percent of the the dust comes from uh comes into antarctica so people often go to Antarctica and they'll go to that massive glacier that's like a spoonful of dust and they'll spend the next 15 years analyzing it under a microscope, looking at the composition of the chemicals, looking at the composition of the, of the tiny meteorites just to see, to see, to get signals about, you know, the meteorites that come past us. What a life. And, 15 years on one clump. Yeah. No, literally that did happen by this, with this one guy. And if you look at pictures <laughs> of micrometeorites, it's actually, they're actually really pretty, like really pretty. Look at, do you know how they tell that they're meteorites? Uh, they're very, it's very easy to see. If you look at them, they're like made of iron or glass. They look like glass. Essentially, they look like glass beads because they've been under such heat. So you essentially get... And, and you can look at the chemicals and just see, oh, that's probably from this kind of meteor. I mean, they look awesome. Meteor. I mean, look dust is either dead skin or dead cells or tiny marbles. Like, it's not hard to tell. You know? That's awesome. So and there's... And, um, yeah... Can I point out the main way that you... I, I'm assuming the main way. The main way, I think. <laughs> Let's go with that. It's basically because a meteorite is created in a high heat situation. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Right? And what happens is as it travels through space, it cools down by emitting only infrared radi- radiation because that's the only way that it can lose heat. Uh-huh. Because it can't do it by convection or conduction because there's nothing in space. Yeah. So it emits infrared radiation throughout its entire travel period which means that the material that makes it up is cooling down extremely slowly, okay. which means it forms a particular crystal structure. Ah, right. So that, what is that? What's your, what your, what's your That's how they tell. I'm saying like, they, oh, they, see. if you find a lump of rock and you look at it and you go, this is a crystal structure that's only apparent, or this makeup of materials is only apparent when it's cooled down over millions of years. Yes. No, that, that means it's coming through space. Yeah, 100%. 
I mean, there's there's plenty of ways to identify a meteorite if you get a microscope, and there's people who are very very well trained in how to do that. So that that's interesting about how how essentially like you get the structure, but how do the micrometeorites actually get to Earth? So that's interesting. So um, you know you know the old story about meteorites. There's loads of them coming towards the planet every day, but they get burnt up in the atmosphere. Well, they don't yeah. they don't disappear. They get burnt up into dust, right? And that right. dust orbits the atmosphere. That dust is just orbiting the atmosphere, just like a normal meteorite. It's in the Earth's orbit. It's part you of get the a chunk. lot of. You must get a lot of oxidation on these tiny micrometeorites. You think, yeah. I mean, a lot of them you do, but a lot of them get to Earth pretty quickly. In fact, a lot of the time, the second they turn into dust, they very, very, they almost immediately come out of orbit. Now, why is that? This is this is this comes back to what I talked about with you before, Henry. There's, there's, a, there's an effect. Hey, it's almost a, sorry, can you say ask your question again? Right. So there's an effect where these tiny particles of dust, which are kept in orbit, almost immediately come out of orbit and fall to Earth. Why? Uh, because wait, so they've they've gone from one large object and they've puffed into multiple small. Yeah, objects. the large object was happily orbiting the Earth, no risk of falling, and they've all puffed into these tiny, tiny particles of dust, and they pretty much all immediately come out of orbit and fall to Earth. Why? It's like in like if you see a space video when the space the satellite crashes, it immediately starts arcing downwards. It's not Why even that. that. It's not even that. It's to do with the fact that they're so small. They're losing velocity, and that's what brings them out of orbit. But why they're losing velocity? Is, is that just the largest? You're saying because they're so small, they're losing velocity. Yes, and that brings them out of orbit. But why would they lose? Wait, wait. it's called. It's something called pointing Robertson light drag. Light drag. The light from the sun decreases their angular momentum because they're so small. Literally, the photons from the sun yeah, uh, lose angular momentum in the, gra- in the grain of dust, and that causes it to decrease its velocity. So its, you know, it's ra- orbital radius decreases or whatever until it spirals into the Earth because of wow. light from the sun. Wow. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a something moving through water. It, it gives it drag. It resists wow. its movement. And so you'll often end up with... Will they not all be the same size then? Or they're very similar size? Yeah, they're these, all very similar size. That's an excellent... Yeah, they're all pretty much... I mean, if you look at pictures of them, they're all like... I mean, they're not all identical sizes, but they're all pretty similar, yeah. Because they reach a point where suddenly... I mean, it depends on the density of the materials, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. So it says here, meteoroids in the range of 1 to 100 micrometers yeah. are dragged by the pointing Robinson drag to the sun. Yes. I mean, they have extremes, wow. but yeah. Fucking cool, isn't it? And, that is cool. And there's so many of them. Like, estimated about, I think, 5,000 tons of these fall to Earth every year. And it's one of the main ways that, um, you know, like things at the bottom of the ocean in, in uh, you know, hadapalagic environments get nutrients like iron. And essentially exclusively through micrometeorites. Is this, what, what's it, what was the name? You did a conversation. It was like chemo, chemo. Chemosynthesis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that is that where chemosynthesis get a lot of their nutrients? No, they get it from the earth, don't they? Yeah, you, you get quite a lot of quite a lot of iron from the earth. But if you're if you're just like let's say in the abyssal zone or the or the you know midnight zone, or whatever, you're just floating around. Your whole life is spent open open water. You, you're, right. You're, all you're eating is is something called I think uh, organic snow, or essentially just called falling. It's just snow basically, but it's right. not actual snow. It's made of dead stuff. But a lot of those dead things won't contain much iron. The iron will fall down. The iron will get eaten by predators. It'll get absorbed. So not much iron actually gets very deep in the ocean. 
It's right. the micrometeorites that actually provide a lot of these minerals. And that comes That's really cool. Snow. Yeah. The pointing. I mean, do you know about solar sails? I know that they're, they're, yeah, they're like, they're like these big sort of sails that use light radiation and use like yeah. a solar, solar, solar. It's beam. just a giant reflective sheet so that light like bounces moves. off when it hits it. Yeah, you've yeah, 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 and they use a tiny satellite with a giant reflective sheet. So <laughs> it just sick. goes away from the sun. So fucking cool, honestly, and that's yeah. the reason that we see so many. And there's a couple other cool things about them as well. So mu- studying micrometeorites is actually really useful because it's a quite an effective way of getting sampling of meteorites. Like the meteorites that come to Earth are re- have to are really like they're outliers. They have to start as exactly the right size. They usually are only a certain kind of meteorite, and it's very hard for them to actually get into our atmosphere. So often it's not very useful studying them because they're quite a, it's quite a small subset of the meteorites that come past us. But uh-huh. mi- micrometeorites, so many meteorites burn up in our atmosphere. So many meteorites get made into smaller chunks. So once you get micrometeorites, there's actually much more diversity in the composition of these. And it's much more effective sampling method. Oh, so it distributes it everywhere because it yeah. spreads out as Yeah, it falls. exactly, exactly. It's essentially you're taking tiny samples of all the meteorites that come past us. So you can identify what kind of stuff there is as opposed oh, to just seeing massive ones, which are That's outliers. the universe actually helping us find stuff out about it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, and they've also used micrometeorites to actually measure terrestrial oxygen levels and actually identify, you know, measure climate change. So when meteorites come to Earth, right, there's a lot of heat, a huge amount of heat. And in the span of 10 seconds, a small piece of metal can absorb a huge amount of oxygen just through oxidation. Yeah. So if you look at the composition of the levels of oxidation in micrometeorites, which are found very, very far down in layers of sediment, you can collect tiny, tiny bits of space dust, see how oxidized they were, and tell how much oxygen oh, there was. Is now, yeah. And that's actually really, really useful. I mean, the current methods are just looking at organic levels of carbonates that have been formed through, you know, through sponges or... And these ones will often be left for a long time. They're often left for a long time. You have to combine that information with information about the, how much oxygen goes to water at a certain depth, relate that to surface water. In the earth. There's a lot of stages of, of processing, a lot of margin for error in those calculations. But with oxidation, you're measuring it directly and often very accurately. So it's really effective in finding out how much pure oxygen there is in the atmosphere at a certain time. That's fantastic. So, yeah. That's, I mean, I mean I've got no words. It's just good. Good. Boom. Micrometeorites. Thank you very fucking, much. Fucking cool. <laughs> fucking cool. Sam, how how is you like Australia? A uh, great deal. You, no, no, that's a bad start. You have a scuba license. Uh, also true. Well, I'm not, not also true. I have a, a low level. Well, I don't know where you were scuba. What's it called? The scuba license. The paddy. The paddy. paddy yeah, there you go. And I remember having a funny name. Um, where have you been scuba diving? And are any of those places in Australia? Um, yes. Was one of those places, the Great Barrier Reef? Yes, it was. I'm very lucky to have skipped over there. Well, it's yeah. And what's happening to the Great Barrier Reef nowadays? Uh, well, it's getting eaten by crown of thorn starfish at an alarming rate, and it's also getting bleached, mostly in the south, but a lot of it's getting bleached. Uh-huh. But actually, coral cover this year has been at a record high, so that's pretty good. That, that's my fact. 
<laughs> You're joking. <laughs> I was going to say it was growing back, and there's some reasons why it was growing oh, back. No. Was... <laughs> I'm so sorry. You know, let's still talk about it. Like, I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure. Right, why. okay. Basically, I was looking into the data. If you haven't already seen, the. This is a great organic movement for <laughs> podcasting. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. If you look at trend graphs of the Great Barrier Reef, is, they've got, what is it, percentage coral cover, which is essentially the percentage of the sea floor by surface area that is covered by a, a layer of what they call hard coral. Mm. Do you want to add to that? No, I mean, it's your fact. Go for it. Yeah, cool. And that's been going down in a sort of spiky way, but going down gradually over the last few years in a way we'd expect um, because of lots of reasons, mainly due to climate change. Um, but this year, we've we've experienced a bit of a bounce back from the Great Barrier Reef, mainly in the northern and central areas of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and they've now grown to the highest ever recorded level of percentage coral covered in these areas um, since we started recording them back in the 1980s, about 40 years ago. Wanted to, you know, put a little bit of a damper on that and say, this is super easy to reverse and it probably will get reversed. <laughs> um, partly because the trends um, across the Great Barrier Reef that we see in the data are highly variable. Like I said, it was a spiky graph. Um, and because we've had sort of a, a good few months which have allowed the main cores that generally grow there to have a moment of peace and quiet which lets them grow to this large scale that we've not seen usually um although last year we did get in uh 2021 2022 a a mass bleaching sam do you have anything to say about coral bleaching well yeah i mean like I, you made a good point that it's basically the, the graph is spiky so we really there's a lot of caveats and reasons why this year has been a record high first of all the crown of thorns epidemic Crown of Thorns is a starfish and it essentially eats coral. And I was about to mention this. Right, I won't mention this then. So, um, uh, no, no, just keep going. You're more informed than me. So, okay. So, Crown of Thorns is a starfish essentially eats coral and there's been a huge push to try and eradicate it um, because the warm water and high acidity is, is kind of what the Crown of Thorns quite likes. It quite likes these hard conditions and they've been really breeding very quickly. And the thing with starfish is that when it's good conditions, they will breed absurdly quickly because they make a lot of babies and they make them fast. And they expect a lot of the babies to die. But if they don't die, you just get a lot of starfish. So that's kind of what's been happening. And people have been killing those, essentially, by literally just going out and harpooning them. These really cool people have essentially eradicated them from large areas of, of, um, of essentially the north areas of the Great Barrier Reef. And that has been one of the main reasons why coral has been quickly dying in recent years. And now that that's gone, you, you see a sort of bounce back. But the general trend in bleaching specifically is still is still quite clear. And often bleaching occurs in large events, as you mentioned. So it's it's very yeah. hard to see an overall trend with bleaching. And what bleaching actually is, is bleaching isn't really the coral dying immediately. So what bleaching is, is once you get to, coral works as a symbiotic organism. So it's, right. it's, a, it's an animal, but it relies on the presence of these algae called zooxanthellae. And zooxanthellae live inside the coral, literally like in like the cells of the, of the coral polyp. And they photosynthesize. And that photosynthesis provides the coral sugars, and that's how they eat. But when you get certain levels of acidity or certain levels of heat, the zooxanthellae essentially start damaging the coral. They start producing chemicals which can prevent the coral from respiring because they're, essentially, they're getting too competitive. That means the coral have no choice but to expel these symbionts. They get rid mm -hmm. of all their, all their algae. 
and that's why they go white. It's because the algae gives them their color. So once they've expelled their algae, they've gone white and they're bleached. Now they're not getting have a source of they don't have a source of food anymore. So they, so they die. They often survive for a while after that, but essentially they're just a skeleton. They'll die eventually. Uh, they can't yeah. survive when they're bleached, and that that right. that bleaching essentially yeah it affects the algae. Um, but uh-huh. and they once you get bleaching in one area, it takes a very very long time for Kotokor to come back. Really? Yeah. So what we've what we've seen in the last year is a decrease in what they call severe cyclones. Yes. Um, combined with also a decrease in the crown of thorns starfish population, mm-hmm. um, which has resulted in the Acropora coral, which is the most common coral, I think, mm-hmm. um, in the Great Barrier Reef, and it's allowed it to grow really, really fast because it's usually very susceptible to wave damage, which is what happens with cyclones. Um, yeah. and also potentially uh, crown of thorns so so the, it's a two punch combo um, and the acropora coral actually reproduce extremely fast so they undergo exponential growth so just this 12 month quiet period has allowed the coral to shoot back up in percentage of uh, uh, what's it seafloor covered so now it's mm-hmm. around I think on average it's the whole most reefs around the Great Barrier Reef uh, between 10 and 50% of hard coral cover which That's sounds good. low, but is actually good. And I mean, it's also important to remember this is just the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, the Great Barrier Reef is the largest reef in the world, but it doesn't make up most of the reefs. Like most of the reefs are like sort of scattered around Indonesia and the Pacific, and those that we can't say anything about coral cover in those because things like crown of thorns are an issue, but they're still decreasing steadily. Uh-huh. And the thing with coral bleaching is it's not so much a gradual thing as an increased risk of disasters happening. It's like you can think of it like tropical storms or, or flooding or anything like that. Like it's you can say, oh, it's been ten years since our last flood. It isn't climate change stupid? And the next year, you'll suddenly have a flood and everyone will die. So, well, if Sam knew that fact, I'm hoping you guys didn't. It wasn't really a fact. I think it was just maybe I mean, it's an interesting news. break they... in the trend. Yeah, it's com. It's also comforting, but then. Immediately. You immediately have to remind yourself why it isn't comforting. <laughs> yeah. And the scientists are saying, like, we've made progress, but it's very easy to reverse. And it might not even be progress because it might just be a blip. Yeah. But yeah, coral's kind of fucked. Go see coral reefs while you can. Each individual ant is kind of very stupid. No, actually, Sam, I, I just need the toilet. Oh. Pineapple eats you. The physics question is, is everything just balls, or is there more to it? Why is he there? Why is he there? Oh, I'm getting a bit warmer these days. Maybe I should, you know, disperse my ovaries into the world. Mm-hmm. I, I do that, yeah. This is non-falsifiable. This is not science. I'm not a fan of that, I mean, I'm going to be honest. Guess I'll wait for the sun to blow up. Why are you still feeling fast and furious, honey? This is John Malkovich as Snail. And then this presenter was like, can you maybe like elaborate on that? Like maybe just, just for the viewers at home. Give like a yeah. million explanation. And the camera's like, I can't, no. no. I can't. And then it goes, down, brown out. That's, uh. Ugh. 
You're listening to the Substandard Model. 